This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is legendary drummer Danny Gottlieb. Danny is one of the most popular drummers in jazz and contemporary music, while best known as the drummer in the original Pat Metheny group, of which he was a member for six years. Danny, during the past 30 years, has performed and recorded with some of the world's greatest musicians, including the Ierto and Flora Purim group, the Al Demiola Project, Blues Brothers Band, Bobby McFerrin Trio, Elements as a co-leader with Mark Egan, Gary Burton Quartet, Gil Evans Orchestra, Sting, John McLaughlin, and most recently Gary Sinise's band, Lieutenant Dan Band, and many more. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. Over the last few months, we have been sponsored by Buyer Snares. James Buyer has become a friend and former guest of this podcast. In some of the interstitial music, you'll hear the snare drum of the week performed by Mark Beckett. In this episode, there is the 4x15 being performed by Troy Lucchetta. It's not a great recording on this podcast, but if you go to the link in the show notes, it can take you to the YouTube clip that shows you this medley of great musicians. I encourage you to check that out. There's also a link to the Buyer Snare Drum website. If you're close to a store that carries the Buyer Snare Drums, I encourage you to go and sample these wonderful snare drums. Our most recent contribution on Patreon is from our former guest, Steve Haas. He's got a great video on the concept of click chasing and how to strengthen your time feel when playing with the click. He also introduces a fun and creative way of applying a simple 16th note sticking pattern as triplets within a fill, soloing, or groove ideas. So if you are a member of Patreon, you can check out this great video by Steve Haas. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. I know I've said this many times in the past. There are guests that I have been wanting to speak to for many years, and Danny has certainly been on that list. Ever since I first discovered jazz, Danny was one of the first drummers that I started to really pay attention to as I dug into Pat Metheny and his catalog. So it was a real honor and joy to speak with Danny, and he was just so sweet and humble. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Danny Gottlieb. So are you still teaching at North Florida? Yeah, uh, that started in 2005. I'm coming up on my, I guess, 16th year of teaching. Uh, it's kind of an odd thing that I do. I teach, they wanted me as an applied drum set teacher. And when I first got to school, there, was, there were very few things I could really do. I wasn't a good piano teacher. I wasn't good for theory or composition. So they gave me, as most schools have a history of jazz class for non-musicians, Usually uh, they, they have a rock class and a jazz class. They gave me the history of jazz as a classroom class. And I did that for a couple of years. And it, it, while I loved the concept of it, it wasn't so much fun teaching it because I'd have a room full of, uh, I think it was 180 kids per class. And I'd show them all these videos and I'd show them people that I played with, hoping to get them excited. And they were all like, you know, yeah, right. Charlie Parker, who cares? You know, it, was, it wasn't so much fun. So when online education started to become uh, 
a possibility. This was still, I think, maybe 2007, 2008. It was a long time ago. I turned, I, I got the okay to turn it into an online class. And at the University of South Florida, a gentleman named Jack Wilkins, who is a great musician who runs their department, who I've played with and recorded with, he's a great saxophone player, had developed an online class that he was marketing. So for a couple of years, I used his online class and then ended up designing my own. And then I designed a second level, which was a little more advanced for the study of jazz. So I was already teaching online. So all I really had to do was deal with my applied drum set students. And everybody's flexible. They know that I'm running back and forth. So in between gigs, I was able to commute back and forth to Jacksonville and then see my mom at the same time. So it all worked out great. So, yeah, I'm still teaching uh, for this coming semester. We don't know. I'm going to be doing my drum lessons remotely because of the pandemic. We'll just have to see where it all goes. But I love that school. It was started by a gentleman named Rich Madison. I don't know. Do you know who that that was? I, Rich I don't. I don't. Rich Madison, of all things, he was a trombone player, but he was one of the greatest jazz euphonium players. You know, he was a great improviser on a euphonium. And for many years, he was a, a staple at North Texas as a teacher. And it's funny because the only thing that I ever did when I was in high school, you know how you enter competitions like Band of America and things like that? Mm -hmm. The only thing I ever entered was the Mideast All-Star High School Jazz Band competition. And I got in it. And I flew to, to uh, Duquesne University, my first time on a plane by myself. And they had an A band and a B band. I was in the B band. And Rich Madison, who started the school that I'm teaching in, was the clinician for that band. So I got to perform with him. And then, you know, 20 years later, I ended up teaching at the school that he basically started. And Joe Morello, my teacher, also had a band with some people from North Texas, with Lou Marini and with Rich Madison. So they played a lot together. Wow. So there was an interesting connection. So I, I lucked into this job. Rich died in the early 90s. So unfortunately, I never really got to see him either at school or in my adult life. But he started this program, UNF, you know, little state school in Jacksonville. We have a tenure track position for every jazz instrument in the department. You know, most schools have a couple of tenured faculty and everybody else is adjunct. We have piano, drums, bass, saxophone, trumpet, uh, arranging. Everybody has a tenure position. Wow. So I got lucky and got a real, you know, tenured full professor job that is very, I, I came to, I, at the time I thought it, I didn't even realize what I was getting, but it's, it's not a very common thing. So I'm very lucky to have it. That's quite an endorsement to the, the school there. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's a sm small school, but focusing on jazz and, and everybody gets a lot of individual attention. And I love it there. I love the people. The faculty is great. Classical is great, too. It's inexpensive if you're a state of Florida resident, uh, which, you know, I think it's twenty five hundred dollars a semester if you live in the state of Florida, which is great for school. Yeah. So, you know, plus. so anyways, it's been great. And uh, and I've been lucky because they've really allowed me to have a lot of freedom. They love the fact that you're playing music. And, um, and then the other thing that Beth, my wife and I lucked into this job, we've been playing with Gary Sinise and the Lieutenant Dan band for the right, troops for right. the last 50 years. And American Airlines is a sponsor of the band. So they give you a mileage ticket, uh, to go at, you know, to all of the gigs, if it's troop related, if it's for, if it's at a base or, a, an event that they're sponsoring. So I would parlay going back to Jacksonville using the mileage ticket from American. So I didn't have to pay for every single time I flew. So, and all the students are very flexible. So they allow me to kind of 
you know, pace the lessons around. If I have a gig on Sunday, I'll fly back Monday. We'll do our lessons Tuesday, Wednesday. If I have a gig Friday, I'll come in on Saturday. We'll do our lessons Monday. You know, so it, it's been a great thing. Again, of course, pre-pandemic, but it's it's been a very uh, wonderful way uh, to be able to teach and also still play music and have everybody being very accommodating. So it's great. And it sounds like you're just you're you're following that pattern of every week is different. Every, you yeah. know, it's really hard to predict, but just being flexible, it's kind of, I think for some people and some personalities that can be nerve wracking, but I, I, I like that way of living. I mean, not knowing what the, the coming months will bring as far as, as far as work for a lot of us and trying to dodge and weave, uh, in the current situation. But once, once we get back to normal, uh, that's kind of the nature of, of the business. Yep, that that's exactly what you know. I didn't realize it until you just said it, but that is exactly what it's been. And and lucky, I mean, the online teaching. I mean, some people seem to have an aversion to it, but I, it's worked out so well because that way I can administrate. You know, I can grade papers while I'm in Germany, so that's what I've been doing. You know, it's been it's something that's very easy to do. Also, I um, I have fun with the teaching of the, of the history of jazz. I, I have a lot of friends who've done so many different things, so. Often on the road, I'll videotape them and ask them to give me a comment for the class. And, you know, everything from demonstrating on how, for the basic kids, how an instrument even works. I got Tom alone to show how the trombone works, you know, and talk about that. And I was in Hawaii and Joe Carroll lives there, who's a great blues guitar player. So I got him to demonstrate a slide guitar and I stuck that in the class. And, uh, and then for the last, uh, well, ever since Beth and I got together in the late nineties, I've been playing the Epcot Christmas show called candlelight, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, again, this year we're going to have to wait and see what, if anything, they can even do with that show with the pandemic, but it's been a fun show to play. And one of the bass players is Larry McRae, who played with Ornette Coleman for 10 years and is wow. a friend of mine in New York. So on one of the shows, you know, we finished the show, we're in, in tuxedos, and I interviewed him talking about Ornette, and I stuck that in the class. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's fun to do, and that way I can teach with flexibility and also kind of, um, you know, throw the credibility of being a working professional and, and stick this stuff in the class so it works out great. It, 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 I can imagine how frustrating when you were teaching in person for people that weren't interested in something that a lot of us are so interested in and find and are so passionate about. That's, that's gotta be, it it was, well, Mark and I, it's funny, Mark and I took a class at university of Miami, Mark Egan, who, you know, we're, we're talking about this new recording that we just came out with. And, uh, Mark and I took, we we had to take electives and I remember we took a, a, a class about movies and the teacher gave us the answers to the final on the first day of class. He said, here's a hundred things, learn this, you'll get an A. Now let's watch movies. And Mark and I grooved, we had the greatest time because it was just about the, the art. So, I mean, I'm not doing exactly that, but I used to, when I did it as an in-person class, I used to give, I had to figure out a way to take attendance with 180 kids in a room. So I was trying, a friend of mine said, give them a little question and have them fill out the answer. And that way the piece of paper has their name on it. And then you just go through the papers and you can write down who came to the class. So I would say, you know, is the answer to this Scott Joplin or Janis Joplin? And they'd get it and they'd get it wrong. I couldn't believe it. Or I'd I'd show, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And I'd say, now, Dizzy plays the trumpet. Charlie Parker plays the saxophone. What's the name of the saxophone player? And they'd get it wrong. And I was, "Ah!" you know, so 
I mean, not that the online thing has eliminated that completely, but they're multiple choice. And um, it's actually working. I've, I found ways of getting around the, the dumbness of it and, and kind of, you know, g- giving them so much information that by the end of the course, you have to know what jazz was all about. And I really get some good feedback. I feel like, you know, kids are saying, look, I've never even heard a band with a saxophone before. And, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm totally into it. Or, you know, my dad used to listen to Miles Davis. Now I, I know who that is. Oh, yeah. You know. So it's just kind of a, but as a as an in person class, it wasn't the most fun. I have other other friends that teach it, and they have some of the same frustrations, but they're also a little, usually a little tougher than I am. I'm a pretty easy pushover teacher. <laughs> the snare drum of the week is the five and a half by fourteen buyer snare drum, performed by Nashville session drummer Mark Beckett. I make these essay questions at the end of the semester, the main bread and butter of the course. One of the questions is they have to make their own band based on musicians in the course. And another one is they have to review a video. We added a Black Lives Matter question for this past summer because, you know, with the Black Lives Movement and the fact that, you know, so many of the heroes in jazz are African-American, I I felt like, you know, we got to talk about this. Yeah. And I've started, uh, I've just started grading the essays and they're, they're without a, uh, almost without exception, they're great. The kids realize, you know, that this music, you know, did have a strong African-American heritage, but there's videos of Louis Armstrong leading a band of white musicians in the early thirties. And they see that and they see how, you know, that, you know, I talked about my teachers and how Mel Lewis had a band with Thad Jones and how Joe Morello played in a band, you know, who was, you know, Mel was white, Thad Jones, African-American and, um, uh, Joe Morello being, uh, you know, white and, uh, Gene Wright, the bass player being African-American and the fact that it's been a combination almost to show the world how we can be creative together and not that the world picked up on it, but I always champion jazz is, man, I'm so glad that we can all just be and be musicians. So I, I try to get the, the theme of the jazz course being that, you know, regardless of what, of, of your cultural or ethnic background, the music is something that you can just bring it all together and how wonderful it is. And it seems to be getting that message. So that's been really very, you know, it feels good to do that. Yes, very much so. So glad you, you brought this up. And, it, and it's come up in recent interviews. As a matter of fact, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to stay on our schedule today. John Lewis's uh, funeral is going on and oh. I'm going to watch. You know, luckily with technology, we're able to kind of watch some of the speeches again. But uh, I did an interview. I don't know if you know Peter Retzloff, who teaches at The Collective. I think I know him well, but uh, okay. I know the name. So um, I, I knew him from Columbus, and I had him on uh, a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact. And, and we spoke to this uh, a little bit. And, and he said when he grew up, his mentors, his teachers, the band leaders in Columbus and eventually New York, you know, we're all different ethnicities and all the different styles of music that you learn, especially as a drummer, uh, to get into all the different styles of music and all the different cultures. He said, I never thought about it. That was just my world. And one thing that he pointed out, he goes, music and playing music is kind of in a bubble when it comes to multicultural experiences. And when you step out of that in the real world, most people don't have that experience. And it was a really interesting point because it made me more, not more sympathetic, but it gave me a little bit of grace 
to maybe some people that are having a hard time understanding the issues that we're dealing with with inequality to maybe find a way to uh, communicate what we need to overcome. So not to point fingers, not to place blame, not to give any excuses, but to try and find some grace in the fact that as musicians and, and drummers, more importantly, is that we have the opportunity to experience so much multiculturally and with intentionality. And uh, it's been a I'm just so glad that Peter said that because I'm like, that's a great point. You know, that's that's what gives me, I feel, affords me uh, a, um, a a healthier perspective on on life, you know. You know, I, I agree with you. I'm just thinking about it and, and relating it to my own experiences. Um, well, you know, I'm just thinking back, it, like like he said to you, it really was, it was never an issue. In fact, it was something beautiful growing up. I mean, I was just thinking my parents were very pro- on the progressive side uh, of, of life and uh, they both worked and I needed somebody to take care of me while they were working. And there was an African-American woman who took care of me, whose name was Edna Dasher, or Dasher we call her for short. And I used to get dropped off at her house and would hang with 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 Dasher and her, and kids and and relatives and spend weekends there. I had to be six, seven, eight, ten years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, they also used to listen to tons of R and B music. So I I listened to a lot of fifties R and B, fifties early sixties R and B music being there. But it was just some. It was the it was, a, it was like some of my most favorite days was just hanging at Dasher's, and it, it never even occurred to me anything other than love the whole way. I didn't really think about it. And then I was thinking, okay, I didn't start the drums till late. I started when I was 15. I played the cello first. And uh, all of us who grew up in Union, New Jersey, had this mentor named Mr. Geist, Morty Geist. But we always called him Mr. Geist up until the day he passed away, which was just a couple of years ago. And Mr. Geist allowed me to start the drums and switch from cello when I was 15. And the first record, he said, okay, you can switch to drums, but you have to listen to these two recordings. First one is Basie Straight Ahead, and the second one is Art Pepper Plus 11, <laughs> which we know as, as mainstay recordings now. But those were the, he was a big band saxophone player. So here's Count Basie, you know, great. I, I, I didn't even think, to, you don't think about anything. You just think about the music. You don't think about, you know, racial, you know, uh, indications or who's doing what. You just, it's Basie, you know, it's amazing. And then... When I was 16, I don't know. Uh, did, I don't know if you saw in my notes that I uh, I had re- I recently published uh, a book with Harold Jones. Yes, did you know? I did. Yeah, and and you you tell that story about uh, meeting Mr. Geist in that. Yeah. Book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then I got to hear the Basie band, and Harold saw me staring at him. You know, I walked away from my parents down in Atlantic City to Steel Pier, and Harold looks at me and like, "Are you a drummer?" And I go, "Yeah." And he sits me next to the drums. Right. So my life changed, and then I get to meet. Uh, we go to sneak into the Vanguard underage, and there's Thad and Mel, you know. And so it it, it was all. You know, also, I think New York too was a little bit less of a bubble than maybe some places because you were sort of, uh, you know, it was so multicultural, and 
And my father used to listen to WBAI, which was like a like a radical radio station that used to play African music all the time. And when I first started playing the drums, my dad went to buy an album. And the first album he bought me was Max Roach. He didn't buy Buddy Rich. He went for Max because he he was very – he read a lot. So he knew that Max was a, a real special musician. So that's Drums Unlimited. It was the first album he bought me. <laughs> Interesting. That's amazing. That's amazing. So anyway, but yes, agreeing with all your points and uh, – <laughs> Just it is it is kind of a bubble, I guess I could understand. But the, the only th- other thing I guess you could maybe relate it to is those that play sports probably also are are in the sports bubble. So you're you're used to you know interacting with you know you know people from different countries and who knows who's in school. So you may have share that experience and maybe that becomes also a way of uh, you know kind of feeling comfortable with with people of, of diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's a great opportunity to use music to uh, discuss these things that um, need to need to get discussed. Not not always comfortable, but need need to get discussed. So it's yep. it's nice to cover this. It, it, I try and avoid the timeline thing, and so my intention was to jump around a bit. So you've you've helped me do that. It's funny. I had the notes down here. I wanted to ask you about your uh, how you met Harold Jones, the first experience interaction you had in Atlantic City. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, also in your notes you, 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 of the book that you wrote with Harold, you mentioned that uh, Mr. Geist, Mortimer Geist, uh, mentioned uh, or encouraged you to listen to this. In in detention? You were in detention? Was that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, you know, if you kind of acted up, which didn't happen too often, but, you know, we were all – there was a there was a vibe, I think – you know how jazz musicians can kind of be snobby? Not that Mr. Geist was snobby. But he was a hipster. So it's like he knew what was hip. And we all thought that we wanted to be like Mr. Geist and know what was hip. So he would be playing us, you know, jazz music and uh, uh, during school. And then he was in charge of detention. And if the few times that you would act up, you would have to go to detention. But we all found that we enjoyed the music he played for us so much that we all used to just hang out at detention afterwards, even if we weren't bad, because we just wanted to hear them. You know, he had to sit there, and kids had to sit there for like 40 minutes or 45 minutes before they could go home. And instead of just sitting there, he'd put on albums. That's so so we kind of went, yeah, great. <laughs> That's that so it. great. I love that. And and also something, I don't know if you've heard anybody mention Ed Beach's radio programs. Has that come up in any of your interviews? It doesn't, no. Okay, Ed Beach... Uh, B-E-A-C-H, was a radio personality in New York. Uh, There was a radio station called WRVR, which was the progressive jazz station. And he had a show called Just Jazz. And it would be broadcast for an hour and a half in the morning, and then they rebroadcast it later. And he would pick a jazz musician and highlight them. But it wasn't just some kind of lame, you know, let me just play Charlie Parker. Ed Beach was so knowledgeable that he gave you a real history and he picked classic recordings like one after another. So Mr. Geist used to listen to Ed Beach on the way to school. And if it was something that he thought was good, he would tell us and we would go home and, and listen to it. And I had an old webcore reel to reel. So I used to record the shows. And wh- I remember one time, uh, I think Maynard Ferguson was on there and another time, uh, you know, he'd feature Buddy Rich. So there was kind of a, an educational thing in addition to school. If Mr. Guy said, hey, you got it, you know, Ella Fitzgerald tonight, you got to listen to it. So we would go listen to all these recordings. And Ed Beach evidently was so influential. I remember somebody contacting me once they were doing 
either a master's or a doctoral thesis on the influence of Ed Beach on jazz musicians growing up in the 60s in the oh New York gosh. area. <laughs> Pretty amazing. I have one recording left of those. Evidently, they're all stored in, I think, in Washington in, a, in an archive, but uh, someone taped all of his recordings. But I have one Sarah Vaughan that is – I listen to it all the time. And the way Ed did it as a DJ – is in between songs, he would have Wes Montgomery in the background, kind of like he was in in a club, you know, or like, uh, uh, so the song would finish, and then all of a sudden you'd hear Wes Montgomery, and he'd say, yeah, sassy, sassy, <laughs> win, yeah. You know, so it was like hipster radio, but very knowledgeable. And uh, and there's a song on one of the, Sarah, the one only recording of Ed Beach's show that I have, Sarah Vaughan, there's a song that she sings called Sassy's Blues that he plays. And it's a scat singing song. And when I get drummers at UNF that don't really sight read very well for a big band, I ask them to read the figures. And when they read big band figures, if they don't sing, they don't sing like it's swinging. They'll sing like drum sounds. Right. I get them to go and I say, listen to Sassy's Blues 20 times and sing along. You sound like an idiot singing that, but what you have to do is sound like a horn player. And that recording to me, above all of them, is if you sing along with that, you start to swing and you start to sound like a horn player. And then you figure out how to sing big band figures like a horn. And it's helped so many. I always, so that's all because of that Ed Beach radio show. That's great. That makes my heart happy, man. Oh, good. The jazz station in Columbus was very much in the same vein and was very educational and inspired me even at 14, 15 years old so that when I, and they, they would talk about artists and mention names and give history, and it started to make sense to me that when I would meet other jazz musicians and aficionados, like the importance of not only knowing the music, but understanding the history behind it seemed to go hand in hand, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In Columbus, was Columbus Pro Percussion going when you were there? It, it was, and I worked there for five years. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. I love those guys. Yeah, Jim Rupp and... Uh, Bob Breithoff. And, you know, yeah, Bob Breithoff was my teacher, uh, actually. Oh, fantastic. That's mm-hmm. great. And, and uh, so... And, and both those guys have been on the show. So, <laughs> oh, great, great! Oh, that, I'm so proud of what they've done and what they both accomplished. They're both yeah. monster, yeah. monster. So uh, this is kind of related, but um, because of the radio show in Columbus, and I hope that those things are still out there for anyone who's listening. You know, especially a young person that's coming up to to get exposed to that and the excitement of the you know the history behind it. So when I finally got my driver's license and I'm going to the record stores when there were record stores. Uh, I know yep. that, you know, vinyl is up in sales, but still there were record stores and I go to the jazz section. And because of this radio station, I was able to recognize the names, just just the names. And I'm looking through and I'm like, I just I need to buy a jazz record. I don't know what I'm looking for. Well, one of the artists that was played a lot in Columbus was Pat Metheny. So when I see the name, I'm like, okay, cool. And I'm just looking at all these records and I'm like, I don't know. And I look at American Garage, I look at the picture on the back and I'm like, 
yeah, I'm buying this. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And that was my first jazz record I ever bought with my own. Oh, movies. that's wild. Incredible. Yeah. And it, and, and it has to do a lot with that radio station, you know? What, what, what did you think when you heard the album? What it, did it seem normal or weird or what, what did it seem like? You know, I can't recall. Um, it's funny, uh, since this shutdown and the pandemic, I have been doing a lot more listening of music that I want to listen to as opposed to prepare for gigs because there haven't been a lot of gigs. Uh, and so I find myself kind of reverting back to a lot of the music that I used to listen to a lot more of because it was almost out of pure enjoyment. It wasn't for the gig. And right. so I I went on this like Pat Metheny binge uh, for like a month and a half recently. And uh, so it's been a lot of fun to go back and hear that. So my only guess is that the the because I was listening to a lot of you know classic rock and progressive rock and stuff like that and some swing jazz from the radio but but having that I I have to say like it had an energy that surprised me because it was in the jazz section mm. and, you know and it had those things that are obvious like the rock element the fusion of jazz and the but. Uh, and the guitar tones, the the, the non-distorted guitar tones, the very analog keyboards, and the energy that the drums have. So it still has that. And the and I think the biggest thing for me is also dynamic changes that I didn't experience in the rock music I was listening to. You know, that that was a big part of that original Pat Metheny group. Pat, even to this day. In, in giving instructions really harps on dynamics. Yeah. I, and, I, I uh, hear it, man. Definitely. Yeah. And I was just thinking, okay, and also that music had electric bass. It wasn't acoustic bass. And there wasn't any swing on that album. It was all mm -hmm. straight eighth note. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think uh, Off Ramp was maybe the, the next record or so. Um I had a young student at the time that found that at a garage sale and said, I found this record, <laughs> Pat Metheny. I said, buy it, buy it. <laughs> yeah, and then, then he heard off-ramp, and he went, why did I buy this? <laughs> uh, for some reason, I have it. I have that copy, so I'm not sure. Maybe I took it from him. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I want to I get into, so just to kind of preface this, I want to get into the new recording but while we're sitting here, I did, in, in Pat Metheny land, I did want to ask you what those recordings were like at the time. I mean, so much has changed technologically and, you know, the growth of the musicians, obviously. But at the time, y'all were so young and the yeah. technology was, um, in, in some respects, just perfect for recording and getting great sounds. But I'm just curious to know what it was like to record not only a jazz record, but an arranged jazz record in the mid to late 70s? Well, um, I mean, I could give you the whole history of, of, of how it even all evolved. For but, sure. Uh, but, you know, um, well, let's see if, if I, I want to see if I can answer the question and not make this too long winded. But, you know, basically, Pat and I and Mark all met at the University of Miami. 
Pat, uh, I, Mark started in 1970. I went in 71. Matheny came in 72. So we're a couple of years apart. But um, Mark was a trumpet player at the University of Miami when I got there. I, I, um, I had been studying with Joe Morello in high school. I wasn't sure what to do with my life. I had also already met Mel Lewis through Joe, which is a whole other crazy story. Um, but I, it was time to go to college, 1971. And do you want to be a musician? And I, I was on the fence. I didn't know. Do I want to go to business? Do I want to do music. What do I want to do? And University of Miami was the only school that had a degree in a, a combination of both. It was called music merchandising. It was the only school in the country at the time that had that. And a friend of mine, Ricky Levine, who I went to high school with, his father went to University of Miami. He said, you should check it out. I looked at it. I said, this is for me. Great. Half business, half music. I can deal with that. And at the time, Ludwig Drums used to have this thing called the Ludwig Drum Symposium. Did you ever hear of those that they would do? Sounds familiar, but I'm not. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was kind of like a camp, kind of like Jamie Abersold camp, mm-hmm. but it right. was for drummers. And it was run by Ludwig. And they must, must have been maybe five years of it. And they would pick a university and of all places, and Joe Morello being the big Ludwig guy would be, you know, the headliner. And this year, 71, summer of 71, uh, uh, the Ludwig Drum Symposium was going to be at University of Miami. So it allowed me to go early to check out the school before I went there. And we made a whole pilgrimage. It was Joe and I and John Riley and a, another student of Joe's named Bobby Muskus. And we went down and we spent, uh, I think it was two weeks at University of Miami. And during that time, I wandered over to the jazz department and Jerry Coker, the famous jazz saxophone player, was about to teach his last year. And I walked in there and he was running a summer camp for, for jazz guys, uh, for kids. And he, I said, I'm going to be coming in the fall as a freshman. He said, oh, you want to sit in with the band? And I sat in and he really liked my playing. So I got to be in the top jazz band as a freshman, which was really something. Uh, and we, the, the school, the University of Miami, I think there was a total of 50 jazz majors. Will Lee's father was the dean, the great bass player, Will Lee. Yeah. His dad, uh, Bill Lee, was the dean of the school. So it was a very progressive environment. And when I got to play in the top band, Mark Egan's playing trumpet in the band, <laughs> who, of, you know, of course, is a, is a great bass player. And he was dabbling in bass. And I just remember there was one a gig that one of the saxophone players was doing and they were looking, they didn't have a bass player. And Mark said, you know, I play a little bass. Why don't I play that gig? And he played and he sounded better than anybody at the school on bass, like immediately. And we hooked up as, as a nice rhythm section team almost from the day we started playing. This was in, you know, in 71. And then Matheny came into school and we played some with Mark, but there were kind of different factions. Mark played with some of the other people at school and I played a lot of duo with Pat. And then Matheny left school after two years to go teach at Berkeley in Boston. And he ended up getting a record deal through Gary Burton with ECM Records. And Jocko had been living in in the Miami area and was at school as a teacher. He was teaching. In fact, Mark took lessons with him. Jocko was an adjunct at the school and was always hanging around and playing a lot and sounding unbelievable. (laughs) And then when it came time for Pat to do his first album, he did an album called Britain, which became Bright Size Life with yeah. uh, Bob Moses on drums and Jocko and Pat, which was the classic album. And Pat always wanted to play in Gary Burton's band. So at one point, I, I don't know what the story was, but I think I heard a rumor. N- no one ever told me if this was true or not, but I heard that Chick Corea was looking for a guitar player and he was thinking of Pat. 
And Gary didn't want to lose Pat, and Pat wanted to play with Gary, so he added Pat to the Gary Burton Quartet and made it a quintet. But he would only let Pat play 12-string because Mick Goodrick was the other guitar player. So if you listen to the two albums that Pat is on with Gary Burton, Ring and Dream So Real, Pat's playing 12-string guitar, not regular guitar. It's bizarre, but that's what it was. <laughs> and then, and then, Bob, then uh, Mick Goodrick left the group, then Pat played regular guitar, then Bob Moses and, and Gary decided not to continue. And Pat got me the gig with Gary Burton. So that was my first touring gig playing jazz. It was with Gary Burton in 1976. And Mark upon graduation moved to new york and mark got a gig uh with david sanborn that's what he did okay and hiram was in that band and i think omar might have been the drummer there's uh, one album that they did and so mark was mark was already starting to make a, a name for himself in new york on the new york scene and we stayed in touch um and actually prior to gary burton my first gig of all crazy things i didn't mention this uh, but I played with Bobby Rydell. Bo Bobby Rydell was like a child, uh, a teenage idol in the late 50s. And he had a hit with Volare and Wild One. And uh, he was in Bye Bye Birdie. Okay. And, and the way I used to work, we all used to work uh, shows on Miami Beach, working our way through college. Um, there were all, a lot of shows on the beach. And I worked a lot of the, the you know, like uh, comedians and, and singers and acts that would come to the hotels. And I also worked at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, which had all the touring Broadway shows. That's how I worked my way through school. In fact, Matheny and I played Godspell. <laughs> That's, yeah, uh, right. Jeez. It was the year that uh, the Dolphins were undefeated uh, in uh, in the se football season. And I remember we did a halftime show, Matheny and I playing Godspell at halftime at a, at a Dolphins game in the Orange Bowl. I have pictures of it still. And and then another time I played Jesus Christ Superstar and Steve Morse, who was a student at school, the great guitar player Steve Morse from the Dixie Dregs, yeah. he, he played Jesus Christ Superstar. So we did that together, which was fun. But anyway, Bobby Rydell needed a drummer. He was going to Australia. As soon as I graduated, I became his musical director, which was to travel for a year. And Pat thought I was crazy. You're going out with, with what? You're playing showbiz? Come on, you got to play jazz. And I just wanted to go to Australia, and I had a great time doing it. <laughs> and I ended up moving to New York, and then Pat got me to gig with Gary Burton. And then Mark was you know, touring and doing his thing and, and living in New York and starting to really get into session work. And then the Gary Burton uh, group uh, ended for Pat and I, and Pat decided to start his own group. And that's when Mark joined the group. So Pat had already done one album for ECM. Yeah. And then the next album he did was called Watercolors, which I played on. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, that's the one. I the, the first ECM record I have and in American Garage on, but I don't have Watercolors. Okay. Well, Watercolors was the second one. Again, that's before there was a Pat Metheny group. And what that was all about is there is an amazing German bass player named Eberhard Weber, spelled W-E-B-E-R, who, for me, one of my favorite musicians ever on the planet. <laughs> if anybody's listening, just you know, go on YouTube for Eberhard W-E-B-E-R and check out some of the bands. He came up with an instrument. It's kind of like the first stick bass before there was a stick bass. It's just a, a fingerboard that was electrified with no bass around it. So it's like a bass fingerboard, a bass uh, neck, uh, fretless that was amplified wow. so he played this kind of twangy sound that actually mark and a lot of bass players were very influenced by and 
the first year of me, well, the year of 1976, when I was touring with Gary Burton with Pat, they had an ECM festival of music. ECM is the record label from Germany. And one of the bands on the bill was Eberhard Weber and his band called Colors. They had uh, Jack DeJanet was on there. Keith Jarrett did some of the gigs. And, uh, you know, it was just ECM musicians. And we toured for, um, uh, I guess, I guess it was two or three months. And Eberhard was on that uh, that tour. Oh, oh and, and to, yeah, let me, let me uh, preface that. Eberhard was somebody that Gary Burton really, really liked. So the first recording I ever did was in 1976 when I joined Gary Burton's band, when Pat got me the gig. The very first thing we did is we flew to Germany and then, no, no, we flew to Norway to record an album. So before I even toured with the group, the first thing we did is we recorded. So to answer your question about what was it like to record in those days, that was my first experience going into a studio with any jazz group. And here it is for ECM. We flew to Norway and the the deal was you get a day and a half to record and a day and a half to mix. Wow. So we got there, I think it was we got there Thursday and we we recorded Friday, Friday night, Saturday morning, and then mixed Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night. So you have basically a day and a half to record. And Gary at the time was very much into doing takes without edits, even though it was multi-track. So the studio we went to was originally called Rainbow Studios and then it became... It was either Talent Studios and became Rainbow, or it was Rainbow and then became Talent. But it was owned by an engineer named Jan Eric Kongshung, who worked for ECM Records a lot. And, but he was a pop guy, so he got incredible, you know, pop sounds with the with the ECM style miking that Manfred Eicher really liked. So we go in the studio. He's got Shep's mics for the overheads. I was using Gary Burton's drum set, which was a Ludwig Vistalite drum set with an 18-inch bass drum, which you never see anymore. Yeah, you know, it was like Vistalite with with silver dot heads. It sounded great. I loved this drum set, and we recorded that album Passengers with Gary Burton. And the, and the reason I'm bringing up the story is Gary wanted a second bass player on this recording, and he loved Eberhard's playing. So on that album, my first album that I ever did, it was Steve Swallow and Eberhard Weber, two basses on that album. Wow. So that's what, that was my first introduction to Eberhard. And then we did the ECM tour, and Eberhard's Colors was on that, that tour. So then it turned out beginning of 1977, Eberhard had a tour himself of Europe, and the drummer who he normally played with, John Marshall from England, was not available. So Eberhard asked me if I could do that tour. And it was then time for Pat to come up with a second album. And the one I was such a, a fan of Pat, and we played so much, and we were so happy when, when Bright Size Life came out. For me, the only thing I could think of is someday in life I want to record with Pat Metheny. That was my only goal, was that someday I'll get to be on an album <laughs> with, with my friend. But, you know, not no, of course he did the first one with Jocko and, and Moses, and you didn't know what he, what he was going to do. So he decided that I would go and play with Eberhard in Germany in January of 77. And when we finished, Eberhard and I both would fly to Norway and we would record Watercolors. Wow. So the the Watercolors album was Lyle, Eberhard on bass, me on drums, and Pat. Again, before there was a Pat Metheny group. And I was just the most ecstatic person on the planet because I got to play and do an album with Pat, my big dream, and here it came true. And 
you know, beginning of 1977. So again, it was a day and a half to record, a day and a half to mix, talent studios. Uh, the one thing I remember is that Manfred from ECM was a stickler for the piano sound to the point of you, he would ask you to do a take a second time and move the microphone half an inch on oh the piano. Gosh. And we'd never figured out. So there's a song on there called Sea Song, which is a free song. It's like 10 minutes of this kind of lyrical, over-the-bar line, free playing. And we finished the track, and all I remember is Manfred hated where the mics were, and he asked Lyle to redo the piano part, which was 10 minutes of playing, just to move the thing half an inch. Wow. And nobody noticed the difference, but Lyle did it. He played flawlessly. It was great, but that was the experience. But if you listen to that album, Everhart is playing the bass with that really, really unique instrument. And I mention it because I now go back and I listen to the uh, to recordings of my a little bit of my tour with Everhard. The, the instrumentation for that was Reiner Bruninghaus on keyboards and um, oh, uh, 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 Charlie Mariano on saxophone and an Indian instrument. And it was a very free band, and it was some of my favorite playing I've ever done. I didn't realize how great it was at the time. To me, it was just, oh, great, I got to play with Everhard. But now I go back and I listen to it, and, and it was like, what a what a miracle I got to play that music. It was just great. That's so amazing. So then, uh, so that was what the recording was, uh, and for those for those things, was there pre production going on? I mean, how because there's such limited time of actually recording, how did you prepare? to be there or were there elements where okay guys this is going to be more open we're going to just play what you know here's the song and we're gonna this is going to be whatever comes to mind with gary burton we had rehearsed the tunes from what i remember but uh they were pretty they were like chick Corea tunes and Matheny tunes and they were pretty structured the same thing with pat they um well i from my memory the songs we played on watercolors were uh were songs that i had played myself with pat at little gigs uh, that we would kind of jam together sometimes. They were tunes that Pat had written. He must have, maybe, I don't remember if he wrote them just for that record date, but um, like uh, April Joy and things like that, I think they were, had been written, uh, is, is, is April, no, April Joy isn't on that one. Whatever, um, uh, the tune Watercolors, I think Pat had, I, I, I had played some of that material before I got there. Okay. From what uh, but what I was going to get to is th the next recording, which ended up being the Pat Metheny group. We toured for almost a year playing that material before we got to the studio. And from my memory, ECM Manfred liked to have input, even if it was a song that wasn't just free playing, that was structured. So with Gary Burton and with Watercolors, I remember Manfred having a little more uh, input into the songs you know, uh, I like the piano solo here. Why don't you do this? You know, this should be freer. And again, you know, the thing with the microphones, with the piano, when we got to do uh, the Pat Metheny group, it was songs that we had played a million times and we just ran them down. We knew what we were, do what we were doing. We went to play it. And I remember that um, the song Jocko, which was kind of like a f sort of had a funk vibe to it a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Um that we didn't get to it and it was in the middle of the second day and Manfred was ready to start mixing and we hadn't done a take on Jocko yet and Pat wanted to add it on the recording and Manfred didn't want to do it and he said listen I will give you one t one shot at it one take and then we got to start mixing that's it 
So we played Jocko. It was one take, and I dropped a stick in the middle of the tune. <laughs> <laughs> Second chorus of the, of the, I think, of the guitar solo, you can hear me sort of sloshing on the cymbals. Where I'm going, <laughs> well, I'm picking up a stick. Yeah, uh, it was it was just a funny moment for me, knowing that that's what it was. But yeah, it was that one. There was a little more of creating in the studio on the first two experiences, not so much on this one. This was we're playing down what we've got. Yeah, and so that's what it was like. But it was just done in a, in a day and a half, day and a half to mix, and that that's what it was like. But. Um, Again, for, uh, when, you, when you're out there touring and playing all these tunes every night, we kind of had honed them in. Um, in fact, there's a, rec- a live recording that somebody posted on the internet. It's the Pat Metheny Group in San Francisco, and ECM had released it as a uh, before the album could come out of, of a um, of Pat Metheny Group. This was a, a version of us playing live. It was some sort of a promotional disc. And you can hear that the tunes are not as... Uh, as structured as they are on the on the recording, okay. And I actually like it better. You know, we we repeat some of the same sections an extra couple of times, and it seems a little looser. And I'm playing a couple of little odd figures on the drums behind uh, Lyle's piano solo, but it's, I like it because it was loose and it was formative, and I could hear that we were working out the kinks in that recording before we got there. But when we hit um, uh, Pavatini Group, it was in the studio. There's so much great stuff online. It's just. It's just amazing just to I know. <laughs> dig into that. Did that answer your question? I hope it was kind of long. Yeah, I mean, because I think as as we're all trying to scramble to learn how what the next phase of the industry is, we get into the discussions of recording a lot because now we are wearing many hats to 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 create work for ourselves. And so and then everyone has this desire to be a session player. Like, well, my, my dream is to be a session player. So, you know, we, we discuss that a lot, or we, we talk to players. And so there, there seems to be a formula. And, 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 you know, in Nashville, kind of music studio capital, there is techno- technology and, and, and protocol and, you know, recording. So it, there's always the stories of, you know, recording, whether it's, you know, early rock bands, you know, we only had time to record, you know, in the middle of the night when the studio was the cheapest or early miles recordings where, uh, we're going to do like three takes of this song and we're going to do this pivotal album and it's going to be, it's, it, it will have been recorded in two days or something like that. And for, for those of us that grew up like reading liner notes about, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars put into a record that took six months to produce. Those right. kinds of stories just are juxt- juxtaposed to the way heavily produced music is made. And it, I find it fascinating. I find it refreshing. And um, so, yeah, that's that's just fun. I just, just find it really fascinating uh, the way some of those things were made. And then then that recording lives on in our consciousness and forever, you know, and influence us. Yeah. It, yeah. Just, just crazy. You know, it's how certain things are just done so spontaneously and other things are more thought out, but those, you know, that day and a half, it was fun. You know, you were just focused and you played music. And, uh, I just remember on the Gary Burton recording, again, this is my first album ever. And we would play a tune and we'd be, on the on the out chorus and just about done and Gary would hit 
a node or hit a, a, a clunker on the vibes and we'd have to do the whole thing again. <laughs> and, and, and it, not that it was bad to play music again, but it was just, you know, I thought, man, I put my, I really played well on that. And now it's kind of out the window. And I, the other thing I remember about the, that Gary Burton passengers recording is, you know, we finished recording and then they started mixing and I, used to like to listen on headphones in the studio. So I kind of went in the corner while they started mixing and I'm listening to the playback and the drums are really loud. And I'm going, yeah, man, the I'm proud of this. My first album, cool, you know, drums are loud. And then the thing comes out and I said to Steve Swallow and Matheny on the road, did you hear the album? And they go, yeah, it sounds okay. I think it sounds great. I mean, I still like it, but the drums are mixed way down. You know, it's almost like tee, 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 tee. you hear the cymbal like, and the drums are, are kind of a, a little more in the background than when I first heard it. So I was disappointed. But I mean, I, I still like it. I think it's great. And and I kind of did a thing like you were talking about buying an album. I had a thing in New Jersey. There was a record store on Route 22 in Union where I grew up and it was called Harmony House. And I just said to myself, someday I'm going to go to Harmony House and I'm going to buy a record with me on it because you know, here I was studying with Joe Morello, who had these albums and Mel Thad and Mel, and I had all these recordings. And you know, I got someday I'm going to be on a record. Now, now we laugh because a CD is like you know a middle school project. <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know, I know. But oh, but then it was like to be on a record. Holy moly! So passengers came out. I went to Harmony House. I drove it there. I bought. I didn't even tell the guy at the desk that it was me. I, I was going to say, "Hey, it's me. I'm playing on this," but I didn't. I just found it in the bin and I just bought it and okay, I did my little pilgrimage and and that was really really great. <laughs> so so my wife and I moved into our first house down here in Nashville and my dad came down to help us do some painting. So we went to the thrift store down the street on Nolensville Road and to buy some just extra sheets for drop cloths. And we're at the counter and I see this little stack of CDs and it was from one of the first recordings I did when I moved to Nashville and it's sitting on the counter of the thrift store for like 25 cents a piece. Perfect. And I say, Hey dad, check this out. And I'm laughing at, you know, this like, Hey, there's this, this is, this, I was on this recording. It's so funny to see it here, you know, like very humbling. Well, my dad could not have been prouder. He's like, he tells the cashier, Hey, my son was on this record. I'm like, no dad, I don't think you understand. It's twenty five cents at a thrift store. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. Still proud. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, oh, so I was gonna, one last thing. I was yeah, gonna, there was another P.S. to that story with the Gary Burton album. So I married Beth, the great percussionist. She's teaching at Rollins College, and she had a bunch of vinyl recordings that she was going to get rid of. This is when CDs, you know, were first coming into to prom. You know, we were just keeping our CDs and throwing the vinyl out. And she was going to get. She had this Gary Burton album, and she was going to get rid of it. And she said. Yeah, this is my favorite Gary Burton album. And I said, do you know who the drummer is? She goes, no, I don't know. <laughs> are you serious? Wow. It's me. Because the drums are so low. I, could, I said, I understand why you didn't even pay attention. <laughs> Good thing you, you won her heart once again. Yes, right. That's amazing. I think she still, I think she still threw it away. No, no, she didn't. She, still... <laughs> <laughs> she, she paused. Just no, it was, it was pretty, we started laughing. It was pretty funny. That's, but then it turns out the whole thing with Harold Jones. One day, you know, after we're married, she said, "You know, but who really is your favorite drummer?" And I said, "Well, you know, I don't know if you would know him. You know, Harold Jones really is." And she said, "Harold Jones." She turns out she played uh, when Harold was on tour with Natalie Cole. Mm -hmm. Beth had toured as the percussionist for the Florida tour, so they were they were good friends. They knew each other. It was pretty funny. 
That's amazing. So anyway, oh, and then here's one last thing with Beth. <laughs> um, new, one of the new books I'm working on, I've been transcribing Mel Lewis's drumming on the Terry Gibbs Dream Band. And it turns out when Beth got her gig at Disney, she had just graduated from, oh, she was going to Eastman and she was in the Disney All-American College Band. And Terry Gibbs was the was a guest soloist. And when he heard that Beth played the vibes, he asked her to come up on stage and they both played the vibes together. And I have a picture of it. And it turns out that somebody from management heard Beth doing that and hired her on the spot to be in like the future core and whatever other thing she did there. So that's amazing. It was pretty interesting. So, so I talked to, to Terry about it and gave him, showed him the picture. He was like, oh, my God, that's great. So that's, really kind of a – anyway, moving on. Go ahead. Ask what you were going to ask. <laughs> well, getting kind of cl- closer to this new recording, I, I, I want to talk about um, Mark's introduction in the band. And it's, I find it fascinating. I didn't know that he played trumpet, but it also makes sense that he's such an accomplished player uh, for oh. so many reasons. But – that was one of the things that I was taught as someone that improvises in solos that doesn't have to breathe, is you think like a horn player. And I, I'm, I'm trying to convey that to my students and, and my son, who's now playing guitar. And I'm like, you know, when you think about great soloists and horn players, uh, they have to breathe and they create phrasing. And so when you mentioned that Mark was a trumpet player, I'm thinking, yeah, I hear that. And there's a lot of, especially the duo record, I mean, there is melodic and phrasing. There has to be, it's not just an onslaught of notes. There's there's music going on. And I, and I wonder if that kind of informed him on the musicality he brings to, the, to, the, to his bass playing. You know, to be honest with you, I never thought about that with Mark because, but that's, that's, that's definitely got to be part of it. I, I feel the same thing is true with me having been a cello player. There's a string touch to the drumming. And for Mark, there's definitely a horn breathing to the bass playing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But Mark just, you know, we've played together for so long. I mean, it's 50 years of all kinds of, uh, not only Matheny and Gil Evans and all that stuff, but record dates and touring with other people together we just breathe. I don't. I don't know about saying we breathe together, but we both seem to to make musical decisions that have a meaning to it. When they, that I feel proud that I, I feel that that's how I approach it too. That we're not, you know, that we're kind of being thoughtful in the moment. Mark makes decisions. None of it ever seems like it's just to play a note for the sake of playing the note. It never seemed like that. Mm. He would always do things that were thoughtful and and melodic and uh, the way that studio players can form the music to make it really sound like a finished product on the spur of the moment. That's how Mark approaches playing jazz. It, It always sounds like the right decision and we kind of flow with it together. But yes, absolutely. I'm sure the, the horn breathing definitely had a part to it. So there's this, this new record Electric Blue, it, it's going to be out in September, mid-September. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks to Chris de, Gu- Chris de Girolamo for connecting us. Um, he, he's, yeah, been, Chris. he's been kind to, to us and, and the podcast. It's been really great. But also, I, I've had a chance to listen to the record a few times. I really enjoy it. And I feel like having this kind of music accessible to us is, is very timely. Oh, great. 
I, I feel like uh, there's so many of my peers that are looking for creative outlets during this time, and sometimes it's just one other person that's available to record on their end or maybe safely get together as a duo. I'm, I'm doing a gig with a, a, a songwriter friend of mine, and we're doing it as a duo uh, just for safety's sake. And, yeah. you know, it, and it's, it's, it's just really, uh, it, I don't know why that occurred to me. It's like, wow, what a, what a great thing. Uh, not, not any, not anything close to what you guys have done, but, um, I'm just curious. So it's, it's electric blue and it is, is it still under the band name that you guys have? No, it's, okay. it's a different thing because we started playing, found that we could play duo and kind of sustain an, an interesting evening of music, just the two of us. And Mark, uh, now a lot of people use those repeating machines that kind of duplicate things. And, and yeah. Mark didn't do it in the way that Jocko did it, but Mark would create these kind of ambient loops. And we called it waving, where he would just create this kind of background pad and we would just play. You know, I'd find a rhythm within the thing that he had created and make a, make a groove out of it. And then Mark would solo over it. And we used to do these duo concerts, not all the time, but it, it became a part of us. And then also in the early days of the Matheny Group, we used to go to Japan a lot, I think like three times a year. Yes. And the dump yeah. was, uh, very cheap, so you could alter your tickets without having to spend a lot of money. We used to go to Hawaii on the way home. So we'd fly to Japan, and then we'd, we'd stop in Hawaii, and we made friends with this wonderful woman, Gina. Her name is Gina Guy, who lived in Kauai on the ocean in a little hut, a little small house. And she would let us stay there in the living room. So we used to play music into the evening in the living room right on the ocean. And you could hear the, the waves in the background. And that kind of expanded to there was a friend of uh, that we knew who had a big property uh, almost by, right where the Nepali coast starts. And you're up overlooking the ocean. And they were building a home that was not finished. And we went out there with a couple of times with an electric generator and just invite people to listen. And Mark and I would play duo. Sometimes Clifford Carter would play keyboards and Bill Evans would play saxophone. We'd have the full elements band, but we mostly just played duo. So this music kind of germinated from our duo experiences, a lot of it, which was in Hawaii. But we always had fun playing the two of us. So it's not under elements. It's just under the two of us. Okay. And okay. it's... And, and we could have layered it and put all kinds of other stuff on there. And, but it really is kind of the way we play as just the two of us as an honest version of that with a little extra bass and a little percussion added to it. Yeah, there is some layering, but it, it never gets in the way of, of what's going on. I, I, you know, there's the ability of technology to bring in everything is sometimes not always necessary. Um, but right. It's, yeah, it's really good. We could have turned it into something else, but it ended up being just honest duo playing. And, and there's a lot more tracks that we've done. So Mark is talking about doing another vo volume of it coming up after it. So, And was this recording very much in the style, like your approach to being in the studio, similar to the way you used to do it? Or, you know, was there some pre-production or was there some no. open space? Most of it, I mean, a couple of this, there's a couple of songs on this, this release is, I think there's only one song that Mark had written that we had performed as a duo and also in elements, uh, the song Cabarete, but the rest of it were just kind of grooves that we just, I'd start a beat and Mark would play over it or Mark would start a, we call them waves. Mark would start a little feel and I would kind of make something up around it. And a lot of it was improvised. Uh, and then we created a song structure. Sometimes we recorded and then listened to it back and then 
honed it in and did it again in, in a, a little more structured way. But it was mostly just really the way we play. Here's Tesla drummer Troy Lucetta playing a 4x15 buyer snare drum with Mark Vanilla and the Dragon Choir. This is a killer medley. You can find a link in the show notes to watch this whole video. Matheny group started 77, Mark on bass, me, Lyle and Pat. We, we basically, Pat had this, had and still has the same manager and booking agent, Ted Curland in Boston. And Pat basically said, book every gig you can find that we can get to in a 24 hour period. So I totaled up the first 360 days of the band. We played 300 concerts. Oh my gosh. I mean, we just drove, we did, I think we, we must have gone to Europe during that time. I don't remember what we did, but I mean, we would drive. Pat had, his father was a Dodge dealer and Pat got a, a van and we drove in the van and it was no roadies. It was just the four of us taking turns driving and we had the equipment in the back and then we had these foam cushions that you could sleep on top of the equipment and we would just take turns. And Mark and I were two, like two little kids in the, not little kids, but we were like the deviants. You know, Pat and Lyle would be in the front. They'd be talking about like intellectual stuff. Mark and I, we had a cassette recorder and we had tapes of Miles at the Fillmore <laughs> with Dijonette and Ayerto and, you know, like crazy stuff. So we would put on Miles at the Fillmore in the back of the van while Pat and Lyle are driving. And we would be laughing. You know, we, I felt like we were like the deviants <laughs> in the band listening to this like subversive music in the back. But anyway, that, that did influence especially us a lot, especially when we got to play with Gil Evans, because a lot of the Dave Holland licks Mark would use in the Gil Evans band. And, and we had a lot of fun kind of playing off. That was a, a lot of our inspiration for that, for the Gil Evans music was the Miles uh, Fillmore period. Pretty, pretty amazing. Right. And Mark worked with Gil and then eventually got you involved in in that band? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Which was a big thrill. Uh, I don't know if the listeners are familiar with, well, Gil Evans was the famous arranger who helped, who worked with Miles Davis in the yeah. late 50s on uh, Sketches of Spain and, um, uh, and, and those orchestral recordings. But later mm-hmm. in life had a big band that was just a free-for-all big band. It's hard to describe, but you know, most big bands that we've all grown up with, you know, it's a structured thing. Okay, we're going to play this tune and we're going to have a saxophone solo and then there'll be a trumpet solo and then there'll be a piano solo and then we take it out. This band was you play the kind of melody to the song and then whoever wants to solo just stands up and starts soloing. And it becomes all of all of the band playing free around the structure of the song. If Hiram Bullock was playing guitar, he might go into Purple Haze in the middle of a, b- a bebop tune. Or with Mark on bass, Mark and I used to have this thing where we'd do movable one, where we'd be playing like ding, 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 and we'd start a downbeat in an odd place. So the, the music had this free cacophonous thing to it, which some nights would be the most magical, incredible music that you could imagine. And other nights, the thing would grind to a halt and it was absolutely awful. <laughs> and, and Gil Evans would be at the piano just kind of improvising along with the craziness that his band did. 
And then the, the way the charts were written, instead of having like letter A, letter B, there would be numbers. So if it grinded to a halt, Gil could hold up his hand, his fingers and go two, start at number two, one, two, three. And we'd be back in the chart and then it would start all over again. That's amazing. But Lou Soloff and David Sanborn would be there some nights and Alan Rubin and Tom Malone. And it was just an incredible, incredible experience that we actually did get to play that concert with Sting, which was amazing. Yes. Yeah. That I didn't know. I didn't know about that until you meant that's yeah, amazing. It was, you know, so much fun. And Mark and I got to, to play that and. You know, we shedded uh, the. We were listening incessantly. Mark, whenever Mark and I had a have a project, we usually try to go over the music and really learn it. And when we knew we were going to play with Sting and it was going to be music from Synchronicity, we listened to Stuart Copeland and I sh I shedded all his Stuart's parts. And I remember at the rehearsal in Italy, we start to play and, and I start to play a Stuart Copeland beat. And he goes, No, 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 do something different, something different. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, that, that went out the window. Okay. <laughs> But it was fun. We had a great time. That's that's so amazing. I remember my uh, landlord in Columbus uh, came over. They were actually living next door to us, and and she said, "Hey, somebody gave me this box set. It's Miles Davis, Gil Evans, complete recordings and outtakes. It was like a CD box set. Gave uh -huh. this to me as a gift, and I, I'm not really interested. Do you know anybody that would be interested? And of course, I had Porgy <laughs> and Bess on vinyl, and. Um, was familiar with sketches of Spain, but didn't have it. So I was like, yes, I do. I know, I know someone, I know someone. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Um, for this recording with Mark electric blue, that's coming out in, right. in, in September. Uh, how are people going to be able to access the recording, get their hands on it? Well, Mark has a label. It's called wave tone spelled W A V E tone wave tone records. Uh, he's been putting out a lot of recordings. He put out a bunch of elements and, and different albums over the years. And this will be available on CD and vinyl. He he pressed it up on on the whatever the heavy duty vinyl is, 120 gram or 130 gram, whatever the good vinyl is. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to make a just a good sounding, almost audiophile version of it. And so you can find it if you just go to Mark Egan's website or go to Wavetone. It's available. It'll be available on CD. Uh, it'll, there'll probably be excerpts online for you know for downloading, but it's called Electric Blue, and it's really uh, you know just the two of us. And then there'll be another version, another volume of it coming out eventually. And we'll have uh, links in our show notes to his website yeah. and and all these other things as well. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but it'll be. Uh, we're just proud of it. It's something we wanted to do because we played so much as a duo over the years. And, and a lot of times in informal places, we'll play you know, like in a little coffee house or or um, one gig. I remember we played in Hawaii. We played as a duo. And it was just, you know, sometimes when you're in sort of a, um, you know, an environment that's kind of nature and out, we were outdoors in a courtyard and we just we end up just playing, you know, these cymbal waves and, and, and bass sounds and repeated things. And it's, it's just kind of a, it's almost like mesmerizing music. And that's what it's supposed to be. I love it. I love it, man. I feel like we need to, at this time, be able to talk about a little bit about Lyle Mays and um, sure. kind of his impression on on Pat's career and um, and and your relationship, working relationship with him, and and whatever. I mean, having having lost him this year, it's it's such a big deal. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe. It's it's so 
bizarre when people that are around your age that you grew up with musically are gone. And, and it's been quite a few of them. Hiram Bullock, Lyle, T. Lavitz, um, you know, people that we, that I went to school with that I, that I knew, uh, Lyle was a shock. He, um, you know, I, Mark and I played in the band really only for a short time compared to how long the band has, the Pat Metheny group has existed. Yeah. I was in Pat's group 77 to 83 and Mark was in it 77 to 80. And Lyle was somebody that Pat knew not from university of Miami like us, but someone that I think they had met at a jazz festival and they'd stayed in touch and always wanted to play together. And again, I got to record that first watercolors album with Lyle before there was a Pat Metheny group. And I think that's the first time Lyle and Pat recorded and we just hit it off. He was, Lyle was just a genius who was good. It seemed like he was good at everything. Hmm. He'd grab a basketball and he could play, he, you know, make ridiculous shots. He was an amazing basketball player. You'd give him some topic and he would just start to obsess on it until he, you gave him a rubrics cube. You know, he just wouldn't put it down until he figured out how to do it. And at one point when the band started, 77, um, well, when I got the gig with Gary Burton, I moved out of New York and moved to Boston because that's where Gary was living and Pat was living and Steve Swallow was in Connecticut. And it made life for them easier if I was in Boston, which is hence the Red Sox shirt. Why you have the shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> What a traitor. I can't believe I got <laughs> fell for that. But anyway, I was living in, you know, I thought, and I used to also, I used to take girls on dates to Fenway. I thought that was like, no wonder I didn't get married forever. <laughs> <laughs> didn't find the right one. But anyway, um, so I used to go hang out in Boston, but I was, I was living there. And then the, the band ended with uh, Gary for Pat and I, and Pat decided to start his own group. And Lyle was going to be the piano player and Lyle needed a place to live. So I had rented a carriage house in uh well it was, it was like a backyard uh little apartment uh in cambridge and i was living by myself it was a you know like uh, i think it was a two-bedroom two-bathroom house and i was in there by myself so when the group started pat said you know lyle needs a place to live could he live with you and i said absolutely so we ended up living together for a year and then we moved to another place uh we ended up having a falling out with the family that owned <laughs> <laughs> the carriage house, this woman used to, who owned the place used to come in when I'd be on the road and she'd clean the house and she would do my laundry, which was kind of, which was weird. I didn't yeah. ask her to do it. She would just come in and I'd come back and all the laundry was in a bin. And when Lyle moved in, she started doing that and it would annoy him because she used, <laughs> she used fabric softener and Lyle hated it. Anyway, we ended up, we had to, had to leave that place. So we ended up getting another apartment, which was on the other side of, of Boston. And Lyle and I again lived together for a year. And I remember I would do things like, uh, one time I brought an electric train. I got obsessed with an electric train. So I bought a little electric train set and Lyle then went nuts and spent the next year designing layouts for electric trains. <laughs> like we'd go on the road and he'd have graph paper and he'd have like hundreds of them. Yeah. And it was, it was just something, it was just, he would, he just was somebody who loved life and he would find things to do. And from what I understand, so then again, I, I was out of the band in, in, um, uh, in 83. And I think Lyle continued playing with Pat from 83 to 2011, 12, 13, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's a lot longer. I mean, I was in the band seven years. Paul Wertigo was in it for 16 after me. It's hard <laughs> to believe. Yeah. And then you know, uh, Antonio's probably been in there 15 years, whatever, playing with Pat and, and 
I don't know if it's called a band anymore, but mm-hmm. uh, so so I was really just a part of the, the first part. But Lyle and I, every once in a while, would see each other when they would be on the road. He was always warm and friendly and always wanted to hang out and talk, just a genius. And evidently, later in life, he discovered shooting pool, you know, like billiards. Yeah. And, and he became a ranked pool player. Wow, he, I didn't know that. Of, you know, the angles and the things, you know, he was the kind of guy who could just like, run the table and wouldn't even give the other person a shot. So he be, you know, had a whole other life in addition to music, but just a genius, brilliant guy. Loved him. We were supposed to get together in California, uh, within a year before he passed away. Gary Sinise had a, um, you know, that's a whole other thing. Playing in that band is really, really special. We were doing a concert in, uh, for the first responders of Ventura, Ventura, uh, County, had suffered uh, a shooting in a bar where 20 people were killed and then they had fires the same day. And it was really like a a heavy time. So Gary Sinise wanted to do a concert for the first responders, which we did at a college in that area, which just saluted everybody who was involved. And it was a real solidarity concert. And Lyle was originally going to come to that. And then it turned out it didn't work out. And we decided we'd get together another time. And unfortunately, we, we spoke on the phone a little bit. And then I heard he was sick. And then I found out he was gone. That's and, amazing. Uh, unbelievable. Unbe- unbelievable that, you're, that your friend that you think is going to be here, that you'll always get a chance to talk to, and, and then he's gone. But he yeah. was brilliant. He played – it was, isn't a bad – he never played a bad solo ever uh, to me. Just incredible. Yeah, his soloing is, is just amazing. It's very musical, and, and it could – it just transcends every instrument – you know, if you're whatever instrument you play, you could listen to what he's doing and, yep. and take really, something really. away from it. And I was just thinking, you know, we, we I was there, you know, we would we would write tunes kind of collectively, but usually Lyle would have a fragment and Pat would have a fragment and then we play them and we try to figure out a way to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it would evolve. And then we go out and play stickball or basketball and come back to it again later. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I love it. Was, that. That's the amazing. very beginning of the band, it was four of us having a really good time hanging on the road, and we would just do stuff like that. Yeah, because the band wasn't well known, we were just we were just four guys trying to make music and get out there on the road. So uh, it, it was really fun. We I got to share a lot of the, the very early experiences with Lyle, and he was just just great. And then when we lived together, it was really fun. We had a great time. That's amazing. Can, can you tell me about your your time studying with Joe? And and I know this is a this is a long period of time. It, it kind of it's very telling that, you know, you're a student for all your life and studying on and off uh, with Joe throughout uh, a lot of your life. Oh, it was the luckiest thing and, the, and one of the greatest experiences you could ever have. I, um, you know, again, I started the drums late at 15. I played the cello first. I played uh, Mr. Geist allowed me to switch to drums. I had a best friend who was the drummer in the middle school band named Dave Urich, who later played a big role and was involved in me meeting Beth, which was another big thing. But he took me to get my first drum set. And uh, I started, I took lessons with a local teacher, Mr. Siebold, for a year. And then there was a music store five minutes walk from my apartment where I lived with my parents in New Jersey called Dorn and Kirshner. And it was mainly a band instrument store where they would rent band instruments, but they had, you know, uh, a drum department. And I went in to buy a drum head. And the guy who ran the drum department, Joe McCarthy, said, hey, you see that guy going up the stairs? That's Joe Morello. And I was, who? Joe Morello. I think I know. He said, look, and there was a copy of the Ludwig Drummer magazine, and Joe was on the cover. 
And he said he plays with Dave Brubeck. Oh, yeah, Dave Brubeck. Oh, great. So I, 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 I immediately said, do you think he would let me take lessons? He said, well, go ask him. So I went up to Joe's studio and I said, I, you know, I'm a kid. I just started. I live in the neighborhood. And he said, well, come back. I'll give you an evaluation lesson. An evaluation lesson was basically him asking you to play a paradiddle as fast as you could play. And then he played it faster with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'd kind of go, blah, blah, blah. you know, I don't even know anybody on the planet could do that. And then he'd say, look, I can show you what this is about. And for those who you know are either unfamiliar with Joe's playing, of course, he played with Dave Brubeck for 12, 12 and a half years and is on the famous recording Take 5. But he was also the most prolific student of George Lawrence Stone, who wrote the stick control book. So mm -hmm. Joe studied with Mr. Stone and really kind of worked with him on a lot of exercises. And when the second book, Accents and Rebounds, came out, Joe's picture was on the inside cover because Joe was involved in, in kind of creating a lot of those variations with accents. And Mr. Stone had this very specific way of playing. It was a no-tension way of playing where you hold the stick without any tension in each hand. And instead of going down you know, like up down before you make a stroke like the way most a lot of people play this is a system where you start a certain distance to determine the dynamic from the drum and you throw the stick down and let it bounce back so it's kind of like bouncing a ball and you end up being able to play with no tension and you're able to vary the dynamics in a really radical way and i didn't really understand what i was getting into in the very beginning but joe took his time with me and as he did with everybody and and it changed the whole way that I play music. I'd, I'd never be the musician, you know, at all, even close to being able to perform the, the way I do without having this method as a background. And it's also something that Joe himself, you never stop studying. It always, there's always more to practice. I still have a hundred exercises. I never, I still haven't gotten to that. He's that, that, that are out of his teaching. And, um, it just made me want to be around him all the time. Whenever he was, and he's such a wonderful, was such a wonderful person, and he loved to hang out after every lesson. So it was always a place to spend time. Whenever I'd be, if I was happy, if I was sad, if I had any emotional stuff, I'd always go to visit Joe. And even when I went to college, I'd come back. And even when I was on the road, I'd come back and always had Joe to come spend time with. So it was really just amazing to be around him. Yeah. I had a, luckily I had a chance to meet him uh, when I was Did you? studying with Bob uh, up in Columbus and... Uh, yeah, it was great. Are, are you familiar with the stone method? Is that something you yeah, practice? Yeah, for sure. Uh, not not as much as the you know the molar technique or some of the other things, but um, mm -hmm. I, I, at this point in my life, I, I I think that that probably would benefit me more. One of the questions I or one of the in my notes I have, I wanted to ask you, kind of if you're dealing with anything at this stage of your life physically because of what we play is such a physical instrument um that you've had to contend with or if 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 any of this technique has helped avoid injury or overcome other obstacles that sometimes plague us as we go through different stages of our life i would say absolutely this is a non-tension way of playing it's a not it's not really a muscular thing it's a reflex way and there's, if you use the full strokes and then the arm strokes, the way that Joe and Mr. Stone have designed it, it's really a, a, a non-tension causing thing. There's no squeezing. There's no stiffness. I've never had to deal with carpal tunnel. It's, it always seems to be okay. The only one episode I've ever really had is I need to sit higher than lower. 
And I, there's a great a chiropractor in New York, uh, Roy Siegel, who's kind of like the drummer's chiropractor. And he was having us sit higher than our knees. And I found that if I, you know, some drummers can sit very, very low and, 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 and do just fine. For me, it doesn't work. I start to lean. And I kind of have a weird sitting position anyway, but I, I really need to sit high. Mm-hmm. And I tend to keep the cymbals pretty low so that I don't have to strain. But I do use rented gear just about every gig that I play on the road, and I have forever. Very rarely do I get to take a drum kit. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, and once in a while, you'll get a seat that doesn't go high. And some one of the Gary Sinise gigs, I just had to sit low, and I strained to hit a cymbal. And I get little twinges in the shoulder ever since that one time when I had to strain. But Beth and I are playing tennis every single day. So I've been getting more pains from tennis than I am from the, oh, from the drums. Right. Yeah. But, but, the drum, but the drums has actually been very easy to play and not uh, – I, I play very relaxed. Um, and I'm you – know, even though I can play loud, I'm really kind of a you – know, I mostly play heel down. Uh, except on, you know, if I'm playing funk tunes, I got to, you know, get up on the heel, but, uh, I, I, the, the dynamics afforded by Joe's system without tension have been very helpful. So I don't have any real problem from the drums other than if I have to sit low and reach. So I try to avoid that. So on a personal note, where would I, how would I dig more into this? I mean, would that be through his master studies book or... You know, unfortunately, it's not documented all that much because Joe felt that master studies just like I always ask, well, why didn't Mr. Stone write any of this stuff down in stick control? And he said, well, Mr. Stone wanted everybody to just use the stick control the way that they wanted to use it. He didn't want to tell them they had to do this. There's I mean, I've documented some videos and other people who have studied with Joe Famulara, John Riley, um, there was one of Joe's students who actually wrote a book about it, but it's really it's just, it's a, uh, you know, the, the, the things you have to do is you have to, first of all, he has you figure out how to hold the stick. And it's basically how the hand moves wi- without a stick, with a stick in it. So you don't change anything. Gotcha. You, don't, uh, you don't squeeze. And then Joe used to point out that there's three basic ways that people make a stroke. They start low and they raise the stick up and down, which, you know, it's kind of like the way the drum corps people do it, where they start low and go up, down, and then they go down. And then the other one, which he called idle hand high, is one goes up and one goes down. Mm-hmm. And this method is basically doing neither of those and picking the distance from the drum and throwing the stick down. And it's coming back to the, exactly the starting position mm-hmm. without a preparatory stroke called a full stroke. Yeah. And I, I, some of the, there's some videos of me with Joe and just me just talking about it on the internet where I kind of show some of that stuff. But you know, those are the, there's, there's basically a full stroke, a half stroke, a down stroke and an upstroke, And then it goes into arm strokes. And for the molar, Joe, for Joe, the molar was just an arm stroke as a subset of the whole, whole bigger picture. You know, Joe was felt that the molar was very useful, but it was only good for a single note. You could only get an accent on the whipping stroke. You could never go bop, 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 bop with a molar. Yeah. Yeah. So he, so it was it was a it was a kind of a one trick pony that was very helpful, and then there was a straight forearm throw where you raise the stick higher than the full stroke, and you throw it down using your shoulder and and the bottom uh, your the bottom part of your forearm. Yeah. But um, in terms of it really being structured and taught anywhere, I don't think it's documented that well. And Steve Fittick is another one who's an expert at this. So any of the any of the information or videos that any of us who have studied with Joe, we probably allude to it all along the way. Yeah. 
Well, if, if I can get some things back to normal, I, I'll probably try and maybe hit you up for a private lesson. Oh, you don't even have to just if you want to, you know, do a Zoom, just let me know. That goes right. uh, if, if I can help anybody with this, please yeah. just let me know. That's a that's a great idea. Here's Jared Pope performing on the six and a half by fourteen buyer snare drum live with Damon Johnson. When I was growing up, and, and, and Matheny was a big influence on this, was that he, he felt that you should really be able to develop, a, have a sound that is associated with your personality mm. and be define the cymbal playing. You know, you hear Mel Lewis, you hear Buddy Rich, you hear Joe Morello, and it could be to hear Tony Williams. They all sound like them, Jimmy Cobb. They sound like themselves. Whereas in today's music, because of recording techniques, the way drums sound, some of the bands, unless it's a stylized group that you know, like Dirty Loops or something like that, just purely from the drum sound, it's it's increasingly harder for me to know the difference. Is it Vinny? Is it Weckl? Is it Omar? Is it this? Is it that? It's, you know, sometimes the licks might be defining, but the actual sound of the drums is not such a priority these days. So that to me is a little bit mystifying because I, I like sounding a little more unique than sounding like everything else. But on the other hand, I've done my share of studio work where I had to sound very generic yeah, or sound like another drummer. Yeah. You know, this has to sound like the police. It's a McDonald's commercial. Okay. You know, so, you know, it's a different way of playing or like when I played with the, with the Booker T and the MGs, yeah. I'm not going to use a flat symbol and sound like I'm playing with Pat Metheny. <laughs> and, and if you heard me doing that, you probably wouldn't even know it was me, nor would it have any defining thing other than I was trying to copy Al Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Right. But so that's always been a question. And I remember um, the person that talked about that, of all people, I remember reading an interview with Ed Shaughnessy where he was saying that, and I think Ed really did have a personality on the drums, but because he backed so many different people, he said he felt like a, chame a chameleon because, you know, one day he's playing Jimi Hendrix and the next day he's playing Neil Diamond and the next day he's playing Sinatra. And, you know, it's like no one would really know the, the personality from the drums because of the people that he was playing with. But then he also felt that he made a valid commitment to the art just by being able to do all of that. Right, so, right. You know, just, just something to think about. Well, and, and, and in some respects, I, 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 over the arc of your career, I mean, I, I've heard you do, do so many different things. I mean, from Pat Metheny and Booker T and the MGs to now working with Gary Sinise, I right. mean, man, that... that those three things could not be more different, and even, even some of the the rock and stuff with John McLaughlin. I mean, it, it's it's pretty incredible, and it it is interesting how, it, it you know like you're playing some pretty loud stuff even with Gary's gig, and and that kind of ties in with the question I had before about just the physicality of drumming, uh, and and how you're able to sustain that. And uh, and and do the work that you're doing with with Gary. But could could you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe we could close up a little bit about uh, about that gig and how important, oh sure how, about how that, that's been. 
I, w- I'd l- I love talking about it. And, um, you know, G- Gary Sinise is the bass player in the band. Yeah. William. And uh, it started, uh, again, you know, my wife Beth was working at, at Disney. Um, when we first got married in 98, I moved down to Orlando, and Beth was playing the Christmas show at Epcot, which is called Candlelight. And she got me on it as a sub, and then I've been doing it now since 98. And any of you who have been to Disney World at Christmas time and have seen that thing, it's this giant show that has usually 250 kids and then another 100 uh, that are singing in a choir that are like guest choirs and then a, a 60-piece orchestra and then another 100 people who work at Disney who are volunteer singers and then another group of 15 singers that are pros. So there's like 500 people on stage and they have a guest narrator. And every three days, it's reading the Christmas story with orchestral music. And every three days, they have a different narrator. And Gary Sinise was one of the narrators. And we didn't know him other than, you know, Forrest Gump and then, uh, you know, that he was a visiting narrator. And one year, he came over to me after a, one of the shows and he said, didn't, you're Danny, didn't you used to play with Pat Metheny? And I said, how do you, how do you know how, who Pat Metheny is? You know, <laughs> And he said, well, I actually, I, I started as a bass player and guitar player, and I just started the Lieutenant Dan band. I got a little band, and we all laughed and, you know, thought, you know, how good could it be, you know, Gary, Lieutenant Dan, and, you know, kind of forgot about it. And then I guess the, either, that was in 03, and then 04, we saw Gary again, and then we got a call from uh, a guy who has, had been helping him with the band, saying they had a, a concert in Orlando coming up, and would Beth and I like to play on it? And we said, yeah, Absolutely. And at first I thought, what could this be? And it turned out to be one of the most difficult gigs I'd ever had to do because Gary at that point was doing two hour and a half shows. So it was 25 songs per set. So it was like 50 songs. And the keyboard player had written charts for them, but Gary didn't want us to use music. So some of the tunes were, you know, like Superstition and Stevie Wonder kind of tunes that, that I knew, but others were contemporary songs that had odd forms and the drums lay out for two bars here and then there's an extra bar there and there's a bar at two, you know, the way that some of the contemporary songs are written. So it was hard to just memorize all that stuff. And then before the concert, Gary told, it was at the, I think it was at the House of Blues Orlando and it was a, a special thing for Wounded Vets, uh, a, a, a bonding session. And Gary brought everybody in the band together and said, listen, you are going to see some very rough things out here. You're going to meet people that have no noses and no ears and burned and just go talk to them because they want to share their stories and let's just give them a good concert. And my wife had brought one of her good friends there and she sat at a table with a guy who had lost both legs and just had them replaced. And before the end of the concert, she had him up on stage with a tambourine, you know, dancing with us. And it was it was just a, a moving, life changing and thing. And then Gary, of all things, can play the bass really well. He's got great time. He's got good intonation. He's got really good musical instincts. You can't even believe it. I can't wait to play with him. He's really fun to play with. It's, it's, it's kind of like Mark, but in a different way. Get Mark is so musical and he responds only what's important to play. And the same thing with Gary, Gary plays a bass part that means something. And it's, it's, it's so he's really, it's, it was so surprising and it started off as this little thing, you know, Gary said, well, I'd love for you and Beth. And then here's Beth playing percussion. So we get to share it together. And, you know, at that point it was maybe four or five gigs a year. And if it made a nickel, Gary would donate it to somebody, but he was bankrolling it. We all got paid a little something and uh, did a couple of bases and a few USO shows. And 
then it started to become a much bigger thing where we'd start to play at one point it got up to 50 gigs a year and people were starting to notice the band and we'd start to do casinos and bigger gigs and the personnel changed and every time somebody would leave they'd recommend somebody that that was actually better than the person that left and Gary would add people and it ended up having five singers in the group and it ended up being a 12 piece group and then eventually Tom Malone after the Letterman show went off was was asked to join the group so he's playing in the band uh, and and very high level musical expectations. Everybody's got pretty much a jazz background. The singers all sing in tune. Everybody rehearses stuff. Uh, ben, the keyboard player, who's the leader, went to IU and studied with David Baker, and um, just really amazing. And and what had happened was the uh, let's see. Well, uh, Gary started to vo- well originally Gary started to volunteer after Forrest Gump. He was honored by the American Disabled Vets which kind of freaked him out because he was uh, given an award for playing a, a soldier that came back after losing, you know, losing legs and being successful. And Gary said, look, I'm just an actor. I played a role. And he said, no, 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 you played a very positive thing. This is very helpful to, it shows a vet that can come back. So he started volu- volunteering for the American disabled vets. And then after nine 11, he went on a handshake tour to Iraq with other groups, but he was by himself and he just said, you know, I really don't want to just shake hands. I want to do something. Maybe I can bring the band. So that's in 2003 when they went on their first tour before we officially were asked to join the group. But after that, we started to do more USO shows. And then the first quadruple amputee came back from Iraq and a group in New York wanted to, this is someone who lost both arms and legs and survived. And they wanted to, they wanted to build a home for this guy and Gary volunteered the band. We played a concert at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and raised the money for a home. And then he started partnering with these groups to do more concerts, but found that he couldn't control where the money was going. And he's a real hands-on, likes to control stuff person. So he stopped everything and started his own foundation. And it's gone through the roof pre-pandemic. We were up to, well, we're playing about 30 concerts a year. But I think the foundation made $30 million last year. Wow, so, that's amazing. And then the band, he's just so proactive. The band is now just one of 10 different programs that they have. The band is the Lieutenant Dan Band. He's got this other program where he um, they build homes for soldiers. I think they're up to 70 homes at a half a million dollars a home, which is insane that they could even do that. And then he's got another program where he brings the remaining World War II vets to the museum in New Orleans and gives them a weekend. And now they've added a a component, again, pre-pandemic, where they bring high school students. Each vet, each World War II vet gets a high school student for the weekend to, to to go through the museum and write a report about the vet, which is unbelievable. And then there was a program we used to play called Snowball Express, which was a a thing American Airlines had started where they bring in kids that lost a parent in Iraq or Afghanistan and their remaining family members for a four-day bonding uh, get-together for therapy and to be together and, you know, go to the rodeo and all that kind of stuff. And Gary was so taken with playing it, he adopted the program. In the last two years, he's brought, I think it's 1,500 kids plus family members to Disney World, which has been unbelievable, Jeez. called Snowball Express. This year, unfortunately, it had to be canceled, but we would perform at that. So it's been something else. We've done th- this summer was supposed to be our 500th gig, and unfortunately, we, you know, pr- because of the pandemic, everything's off for the year. But it's it's been a great experience to play for a philanthropic reason, 
and it's great to be with your wife on the road. We have a we have a great time. We yes. play really well together, and you know, uh, and then we get to kind of enjoy the the trip. So it's fun. Yeah, that was always the tough thing about being on the road and and going to amazing places. There was yeah. always like, but there's always there's always that missing element of of having your family with you. So it, it was it was kind of just you know, bittersweet in that respect. So that's, that's really awesome. And, and, and just to have that experience and, and know it just, it's for such a great reason is, is amazing, man. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we try, we volunteer as much as we can, you know, being, you know, I never really played music for, uh, you know, for, for a, um, you know, for a philanthropic reason or for something to, to help people in that way. So we've, we haven't done that much of it. We try to volunteer and we will perform in a couple of hospitals in the area. Um, we joined a group called Achilles Nashville, which is a, a, a group that exercises with disabled athletes really because of Gary's influence. Beth found it. And in fact, she ran uh, the New York Marathon. Was it? Oh, was it 19? No, it was, yeah, it was 19. She ran the New York Marathon with a runner with one leg, wow. which was amazing. <laughs> all through that that foundation so we you know we've been trying to to, to do as much as we can and, and it's all gary just is a, is a do good person he finds ways of getting things done and he's accomplished so much i just you know i can't wait to get through the pandemic and get back to it but it's it's been a thrill and it's good musically and the the, the, the joe morello thing I, I look forward to showing you because you can really play very in fact i play too loud for the gig <laughs> I, I i'm like kenny aronoff you know i'm like whacking the drums and we both have in-ears and beth says take your in-ears out and then i hit and she's joe morello would have a heart attack if he heard you playing like that <laughs> <laughs> no it's because fun. of joe morello i can play this yeah, it's loud because, but you know it's just i play, you know when you when i have the in-ears the poor our poor monitor guy you know, there's tw- uh, what twelve people on stage, and I'm I got stuck with a mono mix, but he's got to make a mix for everybody, and it's always rented gear, and it's a panic, and he's oh, trying yeah. to figure it out. So, a lot of times the drums in the in ears sound like beep beep beep. So I'm whacking it just so I can hear it, and and that's the difference. That I'm sure you've experienced that too, and those of us you know who are have do both acoustic gigs and gigs with in-ears you know when you're playing jazz in a, acoustically you're balancing to real sound that you want to get close to the piano and you want to be near the bass player and you want to balance on stage uh even if you have a little wedge of a monitor but with in-ears it doesn't you're you're balancing to a recording so it, it what's going on around you on stage is almost irrelevant in a way which is was hard to get used to because i'm so used to wanting to blend and look at the person and play with them. And now I'm, it's like playing a record date every time you play. But, but, it, yeah, there's pros and cons to it. And, and we've discussed this before, you know, with in-ears being more commonplace, especially amongst just contemporary and pop music, sometimes yeah. you lose that skill of creating dynamic and balance and interaction and playing to the room. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it, you just have to accept it for what it is. And, uh, not that there's that many, I mean, you still can play dynamics, but the problem you have is if you're playing with electric instruments and say the guitar player changes a patch, whereas a nice little simple ding, ding, ding sounds like in your headphones and you know, the bands that are smaller and, and have more sophisticated gear that they can travel with, can adjust their in-ears themselves mm-hmm. at the, you know, at the instruments. We can't do that. So it's, you're just doing the best you can given the circumstances. But 
I like it too. I enjoy I enjoy both ways of playing. Sure, sure. Uh, it's it, tonight actually. I've I'm doing an online gig, and uh, we're all using the X32, and I've got an app on my iPad, and so everybody adjusts their mix themselves, and that's been pretty commonplace in Nashville in the la- in the last few years. What is the X32? So the X32 is a monitor board, and it's usually uh, and sometimes it's rack mountable. So there's been uh, traveling bands that will uh, check that or, you know, take that on flights and and have it with them on gigs. You know, it's just another piece of gear. But a lot of uh, a lot of uh, digital consoles that are used in clubs around the country have some sort of app on your iPad or your phone that you can access via Wi-Fi. And then you can um, you can mix yourself or you can have, you know, someone else so the technology is getting freakish <laughs> okay that's what i got to do for the next time we go back so basically if you channel all of the sends into the x32 then the ipad everybody's ipad can access all of those separate uh yeah make your own thing uh that's what right I'll, I'll buy it i'll buy it i don't care i just i'll buy it for the band I'm so sick of this. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, there's so many different companies out there. Yamaha makes something, and I've got multiple apps on my iPad depending on the club that I'm in. But the yeah. X, but the but the Behringer X32 is probably the most common and popular, and it sounds good as an interface. And I've got some friends that use that to record at home as well. But just the ability to to log in and to you know find your find your mix and sure. uh, it's it. You know, definitely spoils you. There's times that I'm uh, adjusting my mix in the middle of a gig, and I'm like, I need to be thinking about the music right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing. A lot of, you know, when you're in the studio and you're futzing with it while you're just trying to focus. But still, it would just be great because a lot of times there's just some subtleties that you can't get to unless, you know, I can't get somebody's attention to, you know, you're in the middle of a tune and, and nobody understands what you're, you know, you're pointing to the bass player and then the guitar goes up twice as loud. I know. Yeah, but, and, and it, the engineer may not know your version of sign language, and uh, right, you right. know, you don't want to be the pain in the butt, especially if you're backing up an artist or a sub. So, we've been discussing these things for a little over two hours, man, and I, I can't oh, be I, thankful I <laughs> enough for for this opportunity to speak to you. And I've been listening to you playing since I was a kid, so it's just been. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time, Dan. My my pleasure, and, and good luck to on whatever you're working on. And I'm just glad to be here in Nashville. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out, and uh, um, you know, we could work on that Morello stuff. But thank you for for the questions, and thank you to the listeners for checking this out. I hope there was something interesting, and you know, again, this this new duo project, Mark Egan and myself, called Electric Blue, that we're promoting, and proud of that and everything else. I'll be in touch, and um, have a great uh, weekend and and rest of your day. All the best. Call anytime. You just want to talk anytime. Thanks, Danny. Have a great day. Thank you for the great interview. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was a real treat for me. I hope that you all enjoyed that. I've been looking forward to speaking with Danny for some time. We did kind of stay focused on an era of uh, Danny's early career, and uh, I hope you'll forgive me for that. There's so much more that Danny's done over the years. I encourage you to dig into his catalog. Uh, of course, it's easy to find these days, but uh, I so appreciate Danny and his time. 
I am going to follow up with uh, uh, hopefully a, a chance to meet with him personally to work on some of this technique that he learned from Joe Morello. I'm very excited to uh, see what he has to offer. Tune in next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Christopher Alice, an L.A. veteran who's toured with Dina Carter and many more. But for now, thank you all for listening. Please stay safe and stay positive, and I hope to see you around real soon. Bye-bye.